So uh, Kingdom Vision is like our, our kind of thing for the whole year, and we've been going through this Kingdom Victory series um, at the start of this year. Um, and today, uh, the title is, appropriately, Victory. That can keep going, by the way, if we, if we want it to. Um, so yeah, so um, I was quite excited to do this, this sermon because... Actually, the victory is the, the best bit. Um, if you remember, if you were here last week, Bert um, gave this sermon uh, and on Luke 6, and, and the, the passage in Luke 6 was about taking the log out of your own eye. Um, and Bert talked about how, um, how we need to remove those obstacles. Um, but not, we can't do them by, by ourselves. Um, actually, I don't know about you, but um, my reaction to hearing passages like this is, okay, well, what's wrong? What, what, what can I change in my life? How can I level up myself? Um, how can I sort of, like, it's not going right with God. How can I make it better? How can I just be less, less sinful, be less proud? And that's obviously not, not the right response, but um, that's the kind of the natural response uh, for me. And it kind of uh, ends up creating this, this cycle, this, this kind of, oh, well, you know, I'm trying to be more forgiving, but then I wasn't forgiving yesterday, so uh, I failed yesterday, so I'm not going to be able to do it again today. And it just gets into this this process of how much can I do in my own life uh, to make things better. Um, but that ended that sermon by saying that's not how it works. Actually, we need the victory of the cross um, to make uh, that happen. So that's what I want to talk about uh, today, victory, uh, the victory of the cross. But I want to go back and, and look at uh, the Old Testament first, uh, the book of Hosea, in fact. So this is Hosea. Um, if you know about the book of Hosea, uh, the context is he's told by God, um, you open the book and it says, Hosea, Hosea, prophet of God, is, is told to go and marry a prostitute. Um, and God says, that's because uh, I want you to have children of prostitution. Because the land of Israel commits great prostitution by forsaking the Lord. Uh, he's talking about uh, the fact that Israel is meant to belong to God. It's meant to be God's uh, country. They're meant to be God's people. But they're constantly turning their back, going after other gods, other idols. And so in chapter 1 of, of, um, of Hosea, uh, he, he marries this, this prostitute called Gomer, and they have three children. Um, the first child is called uh, Jezreel. Um, and Jezreel uh, is a place in, uh, that if you go back and look in the book of Kings, it's a place where uh, King Ahab, um, one of the first kings to, to really start getting lots of things wrong, um, it was a place where his entire line was wiped out. God said, I'm not going to let, let your line continue. And it gets wiped out. So he calls uh, his first son Jezreel, um, kind of indicating that actually this line is not going to continue. This is not um, what, what happens to King Ahab is going to happen to Israel. His, uh, his second child is a daughter, um, and, the, and he calls his daughter No Mercy. Uh, and the third son is called Not My People. So it, we start this book, uh, imagine calling your child Not My People. Uh, <laughs> But that's kind of the point. That's God's kind of standing there and he's saying, I'm, I'm your father. I, am, I'm the, I put you where you are. You're my people. I love you. And at the same time, you're turning away from me. Um, and the, the book is about this, uh, this constant unfaithfulness. Um, and we read in the book about Isaiah's wife, in fact, um, 
true to her profession, leaves him, uh, and he, he's told to marry her back again, to, to bring her back um, and forgive her. But actually, most of the book is really about um, how Israel don't, don't get things right and can't fix things. Um, in chapter 5, it says, Their sins are so great that their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. We get this sense that this is not just another time that God's saying, hey, sort yourselves out because um, otherwise it's going to go wrong. God's saying, this is it. This is the final straw. Um, you're going to face uh, some serious consequences for this. Um, so we're going to take a look at Hosea 13 uh, and just go through it a kind of a couple of verses at a time. The sound effects have stopped now. Don't worry. Um, so uh, so uh, 13, uh, verse 2. And now they sin more and more. They make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swells from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. There's this sense that um, Israel, even when they try and be faithful, they just have this, this kind of ability to or not, they don't have the ability to stick around, this, this idea of like evaporation. Their, their, um, their, their good intentions don't last for very long. They end up um, just being, being swept away like, like chaff in the wind. Um, but more than that, they're saying that they're making metal idols. This isn't like they're just being invited by their, their neighbors. Hey, come and worship at this altar. Like we've got free food or whatever, whatever else is going on. Um, it's not that they're making idols themselves. They're spending time and money. They're using silver. They're using like wealth to, to actually invest in, in this idol worship. It's not just that they're accidentally doing this, that they just make a mistake. They're actually choosing, uh, to, to wander. They're choosing to, to, uh, to stray from, from God's path. And the verse continues, uh, with verse four. Um, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no saviour. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up before they forgot me. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. God's uh, ferocious in his desire uh, to, to be united with Israel. This isn't just that he's uh, angry. It's that actually he's, he's trying to protect them and he's jealous for them. But if they turn away from him, if they jeopardize that, uh, then there's this, there's this real danger of, um, of, of like a wild animal. Uh, in the book of, uh, in the series in, in Narnia, um, multiple times actually in the, in the series, um, they talk about Aslan, uh, who's a representative of Jesus, um, and they say he's not a tame lion. This idea that, that yes, he's good and yes, he loves, um, but also he's still a lion. He still um, has that ability um, for danger. And Israel don't seem to see that. They're kind of, they're kind of, they stick with him when they need to, when they're out in the desert, when they've got nothing else. But as soon as they've got something, they, uh, they instantly uh, turn away from, from him. Let's continue with, uh, with uh, number nine. Uh, he destroys you, O Israel. 
For you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. This, uh, this book was written just before the, the kingdom of Israel um, first was invaded by the Babylonians and taken uh, captive. And so God's talking about this, this time period all the way back from King David, King Saul, um, to now. Uh, and he's saying it's not worked. You're, this king that you've asked for, if you, well, I guess we'll explore that when, we, when we're in the, the series next month. But um, the idea that Israel are asking for a king, they're asking for a king because they don't want to follow God directly. They want a, a man to tell them what to do instead of just uh, listening to the law and following, um, following God on that, with their hearts. They just want a leader to go, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And God's saying, this king isn't, isn't enough. He's not going to be able to save you from what's going to happen. He's not going to be able to do anything. Um, these kings are, uh, are just, just other men, and they're, they're equally as, um, as sinful as you. The best, the best that they have, even King David, uh, King Solomon, they're not enough um, to, to stop sin from invading Israel, to stop Israel from, um, from straying away. Verse 13, the iniquity of Ephraim, Ephraim's a tribe in Israel, so it refers to Israel as well, is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come from him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I spent a little bit more thinking about this one because I was like, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, but um, I think what's happening here is it's kind of saying like Israel's ready to be the the nation that God wants them to be. It's ready to kind of enter into this, this relationship with God, this, um, this uh, identity as children of God. Um, but instead, they're, they're, they're not coming out. They're holding on to their sin and they're, they're refusing to, um, to repent and, and be part of uh, the way that God has planned. And then we come to the end of the, um, the, end of the section, which is um, the thing that I want us to really focus on. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And um, when I was reading through uh, this, I've been reading through the whole book, um, there's this kind of strange tension because you're reading through and God's like, yep, you're definitely going to be destroyed. You're definitely going to be invaded. This is it. You've got no more chances. And you get these verses that just jump out and say, wait, no, I'm going to fix it. But the more you kind of read, the more you kind of uh, think about it, the kind of more difficult it becomes to understand. Why is God going to suddenly save them when they're utterly indefensible, when they've got no way to redeem themselves, when, when he says himself that you're too far away, your sins have made it so you, you can't come back to me? It's this... Uh, this hopeless situation, but yet there's some kind of hope, but we don't know what it is. Um, this, uh, where it says, uh, oh, death here, um, there's a capital D, uh, and the capital D is there because of the translation. Um, and similarly, this word, shale, um, doesn't just indicate dying, but it indicates uh, the grave, uh, the place where um, we're separated from God, Hell. So he's not just talking about ransoming them from death. He's talking about ransoming them 
from uh, what happens after death as well. It's not just the act of dying. Um, but we're yet in this place where actually that they can't they can't get out. They know that they don't live up to the law, um, and it's not there's nothing that they can do. But God's saying, "I'm going to save you somehow." Um, we're not quite sure how they. Um, there's this quote uh, that I came across this week from uh, from the TV show The Good Place, um, which is about kind of the afterlife. It's not not about the afterlife in a Christian context. Um, but it says, what matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is if they're trying to be better today than they were yesterday. And I saw this like on, I don't know, on Instagram or something with like a pretty picture around it. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, no, this isn't what, this isn't what God is saying. It's not try and be a little bit better, try and sin a little bit less. It's actually, you can try and do that, but it's not going to get you anywhere. You're still going to be so separated from God, so far away that there's nothing that you can do. This is like a video game boss that's not just difficult. It's not like you need to level up or go and, go and train or change your party or whatever. It's that this boss is impossible to beat. There's something um, that means you're always going to fail. But yet there's this idea of someone who's going to come and, and save. God is going to save us somehow. Um, it's this idea of the, the Messiah. Um, and actually, the Israelites had this strange idea, or not strange idea, but strange relationship uh, with this person of the Messiah. The Messiah is basically the, the idea of some figure, some rescuer who's prophesied about uh, in the Old Testament, um, who the Israelites are looking forward to coming at some point um, and redeeming them. And we have all these verses, these verses um, like Hosea saying, I shall ransom them from the grave. Um, but actually, I was, I was reading about this, and uh, the Israelites didn't have a clear picture of, of who this Messiah was going to look like. What was he going to do? Um, he, there was some kind of like making, making Israel great, but we, they didn't really know how it was going to take place. They didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, they just knew this idea of ransom, this idea of salvation, but, um, but not in any kind of specific context. Um, but one kind of theme that, that came out by the time of Jesus, by the, by the time that um, we start reading the New Testament, is this idea that um, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to um, rescue them from their, from their captors. Israel's been in slavery for, or in, in um, yeah, in slavery. Uh, they've, been, they've been invaded by other countries um, for kind of about 500 years by this point. Uh, and, and so there's this kind of growing idea when we get to the New Testament that the Messiah is going to be the one who's going to lead us out of uh, Roman rule. We're going to overthrow the Romans and we're going to be the, the people of God again and we're going to be our own nation uh, and that's going to be it. And um, that's kind of what most people were thinking about uh, when they heard the word Messiah. This this warrior who's going to come and he's going to like unite the people. There's going to be an uprising and we're going to beat the Romans. And that's it because then, oh, we're the people of God again. Um, there's not really a focus on sin and individual um, that kind of redemption, anything like that. It's all about like, well, how can we, how can we beat uh, the Romans? Um, uh, last, or at the start of our series, um, Ansi introduced us uh, to Luke 4, kind of the start of Jesus' ministry. And he, uh, he, he gives this um, 
this quote, he uses this quote from Isaiah. Um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is one of those verses that talks about the Messiah. And, uh, and in it, we'll see there's all this, all this good stuff. Um, I think the thing that, that people would focus on, though, is liberty to the captives. We're the captive nation of Israel, and we want to be, uh, we want to be set free. Um, one of the reasons why, people, why, the, why the, the um, Pharisees, the leaders who heard Jesus proclaim this message, one of the reasons why they might not have liked this is because actually he cuts the end of the, um, the, end of the prophecy short. He cuts the end of the verse short. So he talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And as he talked about um, the year of Jubilee and how, um, how there's forgiveness of debts uh, and things like that. But actually, the rest of the verse continues uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And you can totally see why um, people that were expecting to overthrow these horrible Romans that were, that were here and making us uh, follow all their Roman customs and not giving us freedom, you can totally see why they would be angry that he's not talking about that. Because he's saying he's the Messiah, but he's not saying he's the Messiah that they want. The guy that's going to come and ride and destroy everything uh, with a sword. They kind of, uh, there's kind of this question that arises. Well, if, if that's the kind of Messiah you're going to be, where is that victory coming from? How are you going to claim victory when we're still going to be um, squashed down by, these, by this foreign oppressor? And we get something really similar. Uh, in Zechariah. Um, rejoice, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Again, they're kind of like, we have this idea that the Messiah is going to come, but he's not going to come on a war horse. He's not going to come um, and deliver destruction. He's going to come and bring peace. Um, and that's not clear how he's going to do that because there's this, there's this Roman sort of uh, invasion that's happened. Um, but you might recognize, uh, maybe you don't recognize the verse, but you might recognize uh, that the elements of that. Um, of that verse. Uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry in Luke 19, we have um, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry um, in your Bibles. Uh, he rides in Jerusalem on a colt, on a baby donkey, sort of fulfilling this prophecy. Um, and we have people, people, the disciples, putting their coats on the floor. They're proclaiming, they're, they're shouting out, Jesus is the king in this city, um, in the capital city, um, with the Roman soldiers kind of and citizens around. Uh, and so they're saying, look, the Messiah is here. He's come and we're going to see victory. Uh, and actually, in that story, the Pharisees are kind of surprised by um, what's happening, by what the disciples are doing. They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I think it's really interesting that they're not instantly, we kind of fast forward to where the Pharisees are trying to kill him. But at this point, a week before, they're just saying, they're calling him teacher. They're giving him respect. They're kind of just saying, oh, you know what? You must be, you're preaching some good stuff, I guess. But you kind of seem like you're saying you're the Messiah. You're the king. Well, you can't be doing that because uh, you're clearly not. 
but they're giving him like a, a, a way out. They're kind of saying, are your disciples mistaken? Uh, can you just correct them on this and then we're all cool? Um, that doesn't happen though, right? The, the, um, Jesus, Jesus kind of says uh, in, the, in the rest of the verse, he says, well, if these guys didn't do it, even the rocks would cry out and worship me. I think that's the turning point where he's like, okay, guys, I'm definitely coming to bring this victory. And the, uh, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders, they don't like that because what they see is this, uh, this group of like fishermen and tax collectors coming in. Um, this guy from kind of a, uh, a nowhere town uh, and he's coming in and he's not riding on a, on a war horse. He's not holding a sword saying like, we're going to rise up and we're going we're gonna to beat these guys. He's coming in uh, and everything he talks about is about peace. Uh, and for them, I think they can't see this, this other sense of victory. They, they just focus on this external victory. They're kind of asking that question of uh, what does this victory uh, look like? Um, because they're really entitled. They're kind of saying, we don't need to worry about our sin. We've got that. We know what we're doing in the temple. We have to do these sacrifices. We have to follow these laws. We have to make sure that we're, that we're clean. Um, and then that's fine. So I don't need victory over anything else. I just need a victory over these guys that are telling me what to do and taking 10% of my money um, or however much uh, and, and stopping me from living my life. They're, they're kind of part of the problem. So far, I've just been talking about Israel, but actually um, that attitude, uh, at least to me, uh, is one that uh, is, is too familiar. This idea that, um, oh, I don't need victory in my own life. I just need... Uh, I just need God to do stuff kind of out there. Um, I just need things to go along the way that I want. There's this, there's this really odd sense of uh, Israel are going to be punished, and they have been punished for, for all their time in exile. Um, uh, but also victory. There's this victory that comes through, but it's, it's so difficult to understand because God's talking about his children, but he's also talking about, well, you know, you've sinned and sin separates us. Uh, but this victory kind of exceeds all of those expectations. It exceeds what they are expecting. It exceeds what the disciples are expecting because it's not just a victory over, over one thing, over one people, over one uh, nation, over, over one religious argument, over the other. Um, it's not a victory over any of that. It's victory over death, over evil, over sin. Uh, and that victory uh, takes place on the cross. Um, so uh, I'd like to read uh, Luke uh, 23, which is the kind of the first, the part of the story where Jesus gets, um, gets put onto the cross. So uh, they came to the place that is called the skull, and there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. 
saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have these, these two criminals, and uh, they kind of represent the two different ways that, that Jesus can be seen. We have this first guy, um, and his, his big thing is, well, save yourself. Like, if you are really the king, if you really have this power, then how is this victory by you being crucified as a, as a, as a sinner, as a criminal? In what way is that victory? He's saying this is sort of your last chance to claim it. Um, and also, there's kind of that element of selfishness there as well. You know, save us too. Like, it's kind of saying, like, I really don't think you are. But if you are, can you make sure that you save me at the same time? This first guy doesn't have any kind of understanding of, uh, of guilt. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be uh, willing to pay the price for what he did. Uh, he's there, and he's not kind of admitting. He wants to come, come down from the cross um, not because of anything that he's done, but he just wants to ride on the coattails um, of this guy. The second criminal, though, um, has, a, has a much deeper understanding, right? He starts by acknowledging his own sin. He's talking about how we're here, me and you, the other criminal, we're here because we deserve it. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to do this because of the things that we've done. Uh, and he also acknowledges this guy, this Jesus, is not um, deserving of being here. Uh, and I can't imagine how this guy has a trust that victory is going to come here. I don't know, maybe he's really understood the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but he has this sense that even though we're like hours away from death, there's some kind of victory that's going to happen. He says, Jesus, will you, um, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He, he kind of has this sense that something is going to take place. But actually, uh, at this point in the story, it definitely doesn't look like we're going to see uh, a victory. Right? The king of the Jews, the Messiah that's ridden in uh, a week before in, in triumph, proclaiming that there's going to be some kind of victory, um, he dies. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn into. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances... And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This victory that's been promised doesn't take place, right? The disciples are there. It just says that they stood at a distance watching these things. You can just imagine the sense of, um, of utter like heartbreak. They've put their trust in this teacher. They've followed him. Um, they've listened to, what he, to his teachings and... Actually, it just looks like game over. When it, when it seems like uh, there could have been something that happened, nothing happened, right? He, he, he died. 
there's, there's three victories that I think actually took place uh, on the cross uh, and during that resurrection um, on the third day. The first victory um, is victory over death itself. So we started this kingdom vision series all the way back in September, and we started with Genesis. We started with the Garden of Eden and the fall. Uh, And because of the fall, death entered the world, right? Because of our sin, death was a consequence. Um, And throughout the Old Testament, it makes it really clear that all of us, at some point, um, every human being um, is going to face death because of our sins, right? In the Old Testament, they, uh, they, they sacrifice animals. They make, uh, they make like a substitution. They, they, they kill an animal instead of killing a person um, for their sins. Um, and that kind of tides them over, but it never lasts, right? There's always um, another thing to, to sacrifice for. It's never enough um, to, to stave off uh, that death um, because we're all constantly... Uh, doing things. They might seem big, they might seem small, um, but they're enough to separate us. Colossians 2 says this, uh, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. There's no way around the fact that actually we all are deserving of death. This verse makes it really clear that there's this record of debt, there's this, um, there's this legal requirement because God is just, right? If, if he just wiped our, our sins away with no, with no uh, punishment, with no sacrifice, with no one paying for that debt, then he wouldn't be a just God. He wouldn't be a fair God. Um, in fact, in Isaiah 42, it says he brought justice through to victory. And this is where that first kind of uh, paradox, that first confusing thing about um, how Jesus can be, how God can be there to redeem us, to give us victory, but also that there will be a punishment uh, can be resolved. Uh, this, there's a legal demand on our lives, right? Just like the criminals had this legal requirement, uh, they had broken the law, so they deserve to be punished. Um, but the victory here is that Jesus, it says Jesus triumphed over the rulers, the authorities, um, by allowing himself to be punished. He kind of, he flips the tables, right? Because he's the only person who doesn't deserve death because he hasn't committed any sin. And so the first thing that happens is this, there's this kind of, uh, this, this payment of our debts, um, that we are not held by the grave anymore, that, that death has no grip on us. Just like the second thief, uh, the second criminal notes, uh, like we, uh, we deserve this punishment and he doesn't deserve this punishment, but because he flips it around, we get um, the, the victory, which is eternal life. So the first victory is victory over death. The second victory is victory over evil, over Satan. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that, that actually it's the devil that holds the power of death. Um, but yet we have this verse that we started with in Hosea. Ransom from the power of Sheol. Uh, redemption from death. 
I want to look at this word ransom. Right, to pay a ransom, to have a ransom, you actually need you need three components. You need uh, freedom, you need to be actually released from something. You need payment to pay a ransom, and you need to pay the ransom to somebody. Um, and the victory here is that Jesus uh, Jesus claimed victory not just over death itself, but over evil, over the one that was holding that power. Um, so his death, his, his, the price that he paid, the ransom that he paid, um, obviously is for, for all of us. Um, and that's released us from his power. So we're not just freed from the punishment of death, but we're freed from um, the powers of evil as well. We don't have, they don't have no claim on us. They have no, no hold on us. Actually, that means that, that we're free to, um, to grow in, in, not sin, but in grace. The final uh, victory that I want to uh, look at is Jesus' victory over sin. Uh, we've read in that passage that at the moment Jesus died, the temple curtain uh, was torn in two. And the, this is the place, the curtain is there to separate people from the presence of God. Inside that inner part of the temple, behind the curtain, is where God's presence is meant to be, is said to be, um, found. But the moment Jesus died, that, that curtain was tore into The thing that was separating us from God um, was our sin. God is holy and we're not holy. Uh, and he, his justice can't, um, can't abide that. Uh, and so uh, the third victory is this victory over sin. The, uh, the start of, of this series, the start of human life in Genesis started with the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was a place of community with God. And sin is what separates us, right? Sin is what broke that community. Death was a punishment for that, but sin actually meant that we couldn't walk like Adam walked. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. We were separated from him. Um, but actually, there's a, new, uh, there's a new covenant, there's a new uh, relationship with God that we, can, that we can have when we put our sins on the cross. That barrier is not there anymore. Um, I think it's really cool, actually, that um, that what happened through man on the tree at the start of um, at the start of the the story uh, was undone by Jesus on a tree. The 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 tree was the thing that allowed sin to enter. Well, Adam was the thing that that allowed sin to enter the world through a tree, uh, but Jesus took it away through a tree, through the cross. And actually, all of these things are equally important. But I. I think the thing for us to focus on, or the thing that I um, feel is the um, the way forward, is uh, the victory over sin. Because it means that it's not about being a good person anymore. It's not about noticing your own errors and just trying to fix them yourself. Actually, it's about coming into a relationship with God, into communion uh, with God. Uh, the end of the story uh, in... Uh, in Luke 24, I'm just going to read it out. Um, but this is, I, I love how Jesus kind of reveals himself to the disciples. So two disciples on the, on the third day after, the, uh, after the, the death of Jesus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? 
They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The, the disciples are completely, like, they, they, they're hoping in this victory, but yet they still haven't, uh, haven't seen it. Yes, besides all this, it is even now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Jesus has been teaching them all along. He's been saying, this is who I am, and he's been, he's been explaining the, the, the scriptures to them. And they don't get it. And he's, he tries to explain, or he does explain it to them again on this journey, at this, this head knowledge. And they, they're, they're following along, right? They want to talk to him more. But they still don't get that, that this man that they're talking to is Jesus. And the moment that they, that they notice him is when he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. It's that, that, that uh, demonstration of the sacrifice that just happened, right? The breaking of his body um, and, the, and the giving it to the disciples. This idea that actually it's something that gives life, right? Something that gives sustenance, um, coming from the bread, coming from Jesus' body. That's the thing that, um, that changes the way that they see him. And when it says they recognized him, I love the idea that actually they, they see something else in Jesus that they haven't seen before. They've been following him, like they say, this great, this mighty teacher, um, this great man, but they don't, they don't seem to fully get it, these two um, followers of Jesus. They don't seem to fully get it until he gives them this, uh, this sacrifice. This, they get this new sense of understanding of just how big the victory is. It's greater than they can imagine. The Pharisees couldn't see this because they were just tied up with um, this idea of the temple. They knew how to atone for their sins. Um, they thought the closest they could get to God was, was coming in, and maybe if you were the high priest, you'd get to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Um, but just this idea of ritual purity, and by doing that, we can get a little bit closer to God. But actually, the victory is, is greater than that, right? Like There's this whole change, this whole um, everything is different. There's no chance of like a sequel uh, to this. There's no, there's no death or Satan or sin coming back. Um, instead, we have... Instead of bringing a sacrifice to him, instead of giving something up, we get this sacrifice from Jesus. He offers us um, his life. And actually, that doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't, um, 
it doesn't require us to do anything but accept it, but it gives us this, this complete purification, um, this complete ransom, this, uh, this complete restoration of our relationship with him. This victory on the cross is not a victory over um, small things, over, oh, I'm struggling with this one sin. It's a victory over our, our own mortality. It's a victory over all evil, all powers. It's a victory over uh, our own failure to keep uh, following the law. Uh, so we're going to come to communion shortly. Um, and when we do that, remember that what we're doing here, we're, we're remembering we're celebrating this victory, the victory of the Messiah, the one who has conquered death, who's conquered hell, who's conquered sin. When it all seemed lost, when it seemed like it was game over, instead we got this victorious rise from the grave. And because of that, there's no ransom, there's no debts to pay. There's no sin that we need to atone for. Instead, we just have this grace, this grace that's there for the unfaithful, for the wayward, for the prodigal sons and daughters, for, for all of us who, uh, who continually stray, who are as just as, um, just as sinful as, uh, as Israel. But actually, we're going to come and, and have communion, um, and we just need to turn our eyes back to Jesus. It's not about fixing the things in our own life, but it's about coming into greater relationship with him. And through that, that's where we get that transformation. Uh, Let's pray. King Jesus, your victory is just fully complete. The the battle has been won. We've got nothing to fear because of the cross. Because our sin has been fully and completely paid for. And we've got nothing that we need to say. There's nothing that we need to do. So Jesus, we know that we're not worthy to sit at your feet at your table because we we fall short all the time we know that we can't win a battle by ourselves we can't win this battle against the world so actually we just come and surrender to you and we we accept your sacrifice lord don't let us be focused on our own sin to be preoccupied with fixing everything and getting everything right but instead just give us joy in knowing you And let us just sit at your table, share in relationship with you because of your grace. So as we take your bread and wine, Lord, just bring us closer into this relationship with you. That's why you made your sacrifice, because you love us, because you want to know us, and you want us to know that. Amen.